Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's get it, David Summers, and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of professional wrestling, as told by the Tennessee stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, let's step back into the ring and back into time. We get wall to wall and treat top tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, I know it's been a long, long week for you. We, we sure been thinking about you this week, too. Well, thanks. I appreciate that, Dave. Uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, just real quickly before we get started here, I'd like to thank everybody that's contacted me. And, wow, it's just been wonderful. I really appreciate everybody's uh, uh, feelings and uh, their thoughts and uh, their comments and you know, and I may say a little bit something at the end of the program about it uh, as well. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's it's a it's a fact of life. And, uh, you know, we uh, my brother and I, we've we've uh, we've kind of squared ourselves away with it. And, uh, you know, and uh, you always got to look at the bright side. Uh, she's in a much better place. By golly. Wow. Uh, and uh, and I feel I feel good about that. And so does Rob. Yeah, for folks who may not have heard, your mom passed away at the age of 94. Charlie Platt called me the other day, and he and I were talking about that. And he said, how old was Ron's mom? And I said, I said, maybe 80-something. And so I was surprised that well, she's lived a, a great long life. Oh, yeah, definitely, and had a wonderful life. Wow. So uh, uh, just uh, real happy for her at this point, that's for sure. All right, Ron, so we got a lot to get to today, and as we do, we're on episode 279 this week, Stud. It's titled Both Territories, Card, December 15th, 1978. That's the name of the show. We're getting close to Christmas night in 1978. So I have a feeling about this, but what was it like for wrestlers only 10 days before Christmas? What was the feeling among the wrestlers? Well, you know, I don't know about other territories wrestlers, but uh, both my territories wrestlers were kind of getting ready for a well-deserved 10-day break. Uh, after the matches on Friday, December 15th, 1978, uh, they got 10 days off, man, uh, until Christmas night. And wow, they always appreciated that. Uh, their comments were, they didn't, that didn't happen in every territory. I know that. But uh, that 10-day period for, before Christmas was probably uh, the worst days of the entire year to actually run wrestling matches on. <laughs> so it made sense to just give guys those days off and uh, let them spend the time with their family. 
And why right. was it? Was it because it was a special time of year? What was the deal on that? Well, you know, it's a, it was a, actually, a, you know, a special time, you know, for, for shopping and, you know, <laughs> the, you know how Christmas is, yeah. you know, yeah. spending money and focusing on one thing, basically Christmas. And I know fans didn't think very often about the wrestlers' injuries, but my being in the ring, man, almost every night, uh, it made me think about it, I can tell you that. And most of these guys that were wrestling, they've 300 times a year at least. Uh, <laughs> you had that many matches a year, you're guaranteed to have some injuries of one kind or another. So uh, most couldn't afford to take the time off when they got hurt and allow their bodies to heal. So, you know, we just uh, give them this time. Many owners, you know, that never wrestled didn't realize that. And they, they worked their wrestlers right on through uh, – the pre-Christmas period, right up to uh, Christmas Day. And, uh, you know, so my being a wrestler as well as an owner, it made me realize that many of them, uh, you know, the guys that worked for me, man, needed to get well. And they appreciated that short break to do so. And especially when business was down and payoffs would have been small, even if we had have run those days, they wouldn't have made much money. And, uh, you know, and the best part about that decision in my mind is uh, – is that when we all came back to work, we came back and started on Christmas Day. Uh, we worked Christmas night, uh, didn't work in the afternoons, but we worked Christmas night in, mm -hmm. in certain certain territories. Uh, in this 1978 year, we did not work in the Gulf Coast territory on Christmas night, but we did in Knoxville. And uh, that was obviously starting with Christmas night, the best week of the entire year between Christmas and New Year's was the best week of the entire year. So they all made much more in that week than they could have possibly made working <laughs> 10 days before Christmas. Well, I, I never really thought about it that way, but that may be one of the reasons that wrestlers liked working your territories as much as they did. Well, you know, I think it helped uh, that I always uh, had a, I kind of had a wrestler mentality because I was always in the ring as a wrestler in my first four years in the sport. I, would, I didn't own the company. And then I continued in the ring with everybody else when I did start my first company, Southeastern 1974. And, uh, and uh, you know, so, uh, and I continued to work until in the ring along with the other guys, uh, up until USA Wrestling Company in 1988, man. So, you know, I, I was a, I remained a wrestler as well as an owner. You know, in a lot of ways, a lot of respects, they couldn't complain because you were standing there doing the exact same thing that you were asking them to do. So that's pretty cool. I mean, you're uh, wow. That's uh, you're you're the leading by example. You're the boss. Uh, that's why I love these studcasts, Ron. I never know where our spontaneous conversations like this one, are going to lead us. So where do we ride today? What's the trail going to be like? Well, we're going to have two more stud casts this year, Dave. Uh, this one, and we're going to have one more uh, before the Christmas week, uh, the following Wednesday, next Wednesday. And uh, this one, we're going to be discussing the cards of the week of December 15th, 1978, as it says in the title of it. And we're going to be talking about in both territories, and then we're going to talk about uh, both TV shows, uh, the one in southeastern Knoxville and the Gulf Coast TV show. Uh, we'll give everybody the results of those cards and the attendances in both the territories. And in this studcast, if we have time, I'm going to try to explain a problem that was happening in the two territories. 
during December of 1978 that was going to affect the future of both during this upcoming Knoxville War of 1979 that we keep touching on. So, and then uh, we're definitely going to have another learning tree question in this studcast. I feel like real confident that we're going to have the time for it. And uh, the last few of which these these uh, learning tree questions, I think, have been very special to a lot of fans. I'm getting a lot of great comments about the learning tree questions. So uh, we're going to get another one in here for sure in this one. Cool deal. It sounds like another fantastic studcast, and we've only just begun, Ron. I can't wait to hear what you're going to be covering in next week's studcast, the last studcast of 2022. So looking forward to that. And we haven't even gotten into this one. Which territory do we ride to first this week? And what about the card uh, cards? I should say multiple December 15th, 1978. Well, let's, why don't we start out in Knoxville this week? Uh, you know, uh, they, they had another really good card. A uh, former Gulf Coast star, Charlie Cook, was taking on a really great amateur wrestler, George McCrary, that had spent quite a bit of time in Knoxville. I don't think he ever got down to the Gulf Coast. but uh, So it opens up with Charlie Cook against George McCrary. Then Dennis Hall uh, had a match against the Mighty Yankee. Uh, Mike Stallings and Rip Smith were uh, wrestling Ron Wright and his mystery partner. Uh, Wright didn't want to say who it was going to be uh, so until uh, we get to the TV. I think at that point we're going to find out. Uh, so then uh, the new Southeastern Tag Champions, uh, they won the belts on December 1st, 1978, Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas. Uh, they're going to be defending those belts against the former champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson. Obviously, they were managed by Ron Wright. And uh, they were going to match that was really going to change things, man. Sullivan and Lucas were putting up their newly won belts. And if Condry and Hickerson lost, they were going to leave southeastern Knoxville, man. So, you know, Condry and Rose were really the ones putting up uh, mm -hmm. the big the big part of this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of an unusual deal. You put up your belts, the other team, if they can't beat you, they're going to leave. So that was Ron Wright's team. They were pretty darn confident. Uh, Ronnie Garvin was going home early for Christmas. And uh, we were short top baby faces uh, because of the extensive amount of outside interference. Ronnie wasn't going to be available in this December 15th week. And uh, because, uh, you know, uh, a lot of interference had been happening in these matches with Malenko and the Destroyer. And so this card had two very unusual main events. Uh, and this was on uh, Friday night, December 15th. And for these two main events, I, I actually went out and had a small steel cage built that held just one man. And in the first main event, I was wrestling the Destroyer. <laughs> and before the match started, Great Malenko was going to come down to the ring. Uh, he was going to get into this small steel cage. Uh, it's attached to the building ceiling. And then it's going to be raised <laughs> above the ring and uh, where he could be seen by everyone and uh, definitely not interfere in the match. I was going to stop the interference for sure, make sure that that didn't happen. And after that match, then they lowered the cage down. Uh, I'm going to, you know, then, uh, then Malenko is going to get out of the cage 
and the destroyer is going to get into the cage. They're going to raise the cage again, and I'm going to wrestle Malenko. So I'm basically wrestling both these guys in the same night. But there's a little money involved in this, too, and we'll get to that as we get to go down the card. Okay, that's a crazy card right there, Stud. Let me see if I can get all this. I was making notes. Lucas and Sullivan risking their newly won Southeastern Tag Bells versus Condry and Hickerson, who agreed to leave Southeastern if they lost. Then you, in a type of match I don't think I've ever heard of, back-to-back single matches against both the Destroyer and the Great Malenko, one wrestler suspended above the ring in a steel cage while you wrestled the other one. Did I get that right? All right, I can't wait to hear what was on the TV that promoted this card that set all this up. Well, you know, uh, uh, let's open up the show, man, and announce first that there would be a very special personality profile with the great Malenko and the Destroyer uh, in, in the today's show, in that particular show. It was uh, to promote this December 15th card. And that the new tag champions, Sullivan and Lucas, were going to be wrestling on the TV. And also Condry and Hickerson. And uh, there was some kind of huge challenge being made from Ron Wright that he was going to be talking about in the show, Les, at this point. And then when the cameras backed away, uh, I was sitting with Les. And uh, I had the big TV trophy that I had won from uh, the great Malenko. I had it sitting on the set with me. And uh so Les told everyone that uh, two weeks ago, the great Malenko and the Destroyer had both challenged me. This had not been told before on TV. Uh, they challenged me to back-to-back single matches, and they both said they were willing to put up $10,000 from each of them if I could beat them both. And uh, so Les told everybody that, you know, that I had accepted the $20,000 challenge. And, uh, and uh, we would be wrestling, uh, and I would be in the ring against both of them the following Friday night. And, uh, you know, basically, I needed time to get this cage built so that I could make sure that, uh, that this was going to be something that I really wanted to try. So we immediately, uh, Les and I, watched two videos from the night before. And the first one was with Ronnie Garvin. He was putting up his hair for a shot at Malenko's Southeastern belt in a hair versus belt match. And the contract contained a clause that said if there was any outside interference from Malenko's friends, which most of the time was the Destroyer or Bob Root, Mm -hmm. sometimes even Bob Orton Jr., (laughs) that uh, if Malenko's friends interfered, that he would automatically lose the belt. So, and that's what happened. (laughs) Wow. That we're watching on TV, the interference came. It came from the Destroyer, and Garvin walked away with the belt. And uh, Les told fans Ronnie Garvin had left that morning for an early Christmas vacation. He was from Canada. He went home to Canada, and uh, he it was a vacation that he surely deserved. He'd been there uh, steadily for quite a while, man. So uh, he had gone home to Canada. And then we watched a second video right after the first one. And this one, again, was from the night before. And I was in a no-DQ single match against the Destroyer in which there was a contract uh, in this one. There was a <laughs> the clause in this contract that said if there was any outside interference in this match, that the Destroyer was going to pay a $2,500 fine. And there again in this match, here came Malenko, and uh, my hand got raised, and Roop had to pay the 2500 bucks. So then let's finish by wishing me luck. Uh, you know, I got this opportunity to maybe win $20,000 from two heels. 
and uh, that uh, these two back-to-back single matches against this kind of talent was unheard of, you know. And uh, but then he said, "Well, so is twenty thousand dollars and one night's pay, man. Ten thousand from each from two guys. If you win, you got to win them both, though. That was the deal. I had to win both matches, or I got nothing." <laughs> so. Uh, you know, lest, uh, you know, the, the Destroyer went to the ring. Uh, the first match was with the Destroyer. And the great Malenko uh, went to the set with Les. And during the course of that match, he, he made a lot of uh, did a lot of bragging about his great companion, his great friend, the Destroyer. And, uh, you know, and Bob Roop was a great friend. You know, he didn't want to say they're the same guy. But, you know, everybody knew it was. And then, uh, you know, he even uh, said... A little bit about uh, how sorry he was for me the next Friday night and what a big mistake I had made to uh, wrestle both these guys in one night. So then uh, Ron Wright and his team came to the set next, and uh, they watched the end of a what was a very bloody TV match from the week before. And if you remember, uh, Wright was at the desk, and uh, he didn't like what was going on. He was at the set, and he went back to the dressing room. He got his chisel. And he came back to the ring, and he busted both Sullivan and Lucas Open, man, in the tag championship match on TV. Uh, then, uh, you know, uh, yeah, he was uh, he was bragging about his team being willing and able, man, to risk their future here, you know, in a loser-leave tag match. You know, he says these guys are so good, and they have such confidence that, you know, if they can't win the belts, they're, they're going to leave. They won't wrestle here anymore. So, and if they, and, you know, and he says that if they can't get their belts back, then they're gone. So, and he got up to leave, but Les called him back. And this, Les has been kind of doing this with, with Wright in the last couple of weeks. And he called him back and he said, I want you to watch just a short piece of this handicap tag match from last night, mm-hmm. you know? And he says, uh, all three of these, well, you know, three of them were against the new champions. Uh, this is a... Uh, against Sullivan and Lucas. And uh, so Sullivan and Lucas decided that uh, they weren't going to defend the titles, but they were going to wrestle all three, uh, Condry, Hickerson, and Ron Wright, in the same match, a handicap match. Mm -hmm. So that ended up with both Hickerson and Condry basically on the floor of the Coliseum, and Wright was just getting pounded by Lucas and Sullivan. So uh, Ron got very upset, and, uh, you know, he bragged that – that this was never going to happen to him again, that he was going to to wrestle the following Friday night with a mystery partner in a tag match, uh, and that the man, that his mystery partner was already in town, and uh, that guy was going to protect him forever. From this point on, he didn't need to worry about anything because this guy, that my new mystery partner, is going to be the man to handle me, handle taking care of me for good. Then he took his team to the ring, and uh, they pretty much slaughtered two opponents. You know, they, they were a great team, Condry and Hickerson. So it was profile time, and uh, Les was joined, like he had said at the beginning of the show. He was joined by Malenko and the Destroyer. They were live in the studio. Fans were sitting right there. They are pretty close to the fans. Uh, behind the set, we always had a little set for the uh, – personality profile and there was a black curtain but it was a different kind of curtain than usual there so both heels man started off they were laughing about how stupid i was and how i had no chance to beat them back to back you know ever 
and that the $10,000 that they were putting up was very secure money. There's no way I was going to get it. And, you know, they were promising to end my career in six days. Said, you know, we got him now. Uh, we got a chance to get him back to back, and there's no way he's going to get out of that without getting some kind of horrible injury. So, uh, and especially, you know, they said now that uh, they were really, really hyped up because Les had announced on the beginning of the show that Garvin had left town and that he was going to be out of town until uh, Christmas, you know. So, uh, and they, they basically said, you know, how's, how's Ron Fuller going to help himself now? He's got no Ronnie Garvin. He's got nobody. So Les finally stopped him, man, and uh, he had to stop him. They were really on a roll, and they said they wanted to show him something. And, and it was kind of the reason why he had invited him onto the profile. And that, uh, you know, he said, he told him Ron Fuller had done something to help himself. He, you know, he said he don't have any help now. He said he's done something to help himself to make sure that this continued interference uh, between you guys uh, in the last two matches uh, in this match that's scheduled for next Friday night is not going to occur. And he said, uh, you know, they would definitely not be able to help each other come the Friday night and that, that each of them when the other was in the ring was going to be locked and hanging from the ceiling of the building. And this is the way he put it. And then uh, black curtain rolled back and two <laughs> men rolled out this steel cage, a one man steel cage, man, the studio exploded. <laughs> they, they got the idea right away. They, and so did Malenko and the destroyer. They weren't too happy about this idea, you know? And, uh, so then Les, rather than let him rant and rave, he just immediately threw it to the ring for the next match. Basically, he didn't want to hear all of it. <laughs> and uh, so it was a it was a pretty good little deal. And uh, you know we're gonna we were gonna go. I was gonna have the opportunity to do something that had never been done in Knoxville. <laughs> good move on Les's part. All right, that's a great profile, Ron. So who was next? Oh, well, uh, Lucas and, uh, and Sullivan with the Southeastern belts that they had won. And Wright and his men, uh, they went to the set to watch this match uh, on TV. Uh, Lucas and Sullivan, they weren't defending the belts, but they took their belts out there with them. And at the end of the show, uh, when Lucas and Sullivan were about to finish their opponents into that match, they charged the ring. Wright and uh, Dennis Condry and Phil Eggerson, all three charged the ring. And, uh, but Lucas and Sullivan, I think were kind of expecting it. And, uh, boy, they started kicking their butts when they got to the ring. They just <laughs> jerked them in the ring through the guys. They were wrestling right out in the floor and they went to work on them. Uh, and they were really kicking them, kicking their butts good. And then all of a sudden, uh, Ron Wright's mystery partner shows up. Uh, and, uh, and that turned out to be Tor Tanaka. And he was pretty much right about that be the guy that would be able to really watch his back and to take care of him. There wasn't any doubt about that. And once Tanaka got in there, now it was four guys on two. Mm. Now, he'd turned the tide, and uh, they kind of left Sullivan and Lucas laying, man. Uh, and it was the second week in a row. Last week, they had been busted up by the chisel, bleeding like crazy. And this time, they're back down there again. So several baby faces had to chase all four of them out of the ring at that point. <laughs> That's a wild TV. So let's go to Friday, December 15th, 1978. What happened there? Well, Charlie Cook uh, beat.
beat George McCrary. Uh, Mighty Yankee won his match over Dennis Hall. Uh, Tor Tanaka and Ron Wright defeated Rip Smith and Mike Stallings. Pretty good team right there, Smith and Stallings. But, wow, Ron Wright was, you know, he's getting up in age a little bit, but, my God, Tor Tanaka was a force. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, he's, he's going he's gonna to really change things uh, quite a bit. Uh, Kevin Sullivan and Ken Lucas, uh, they kept their belts. Uh, they had this match in which they, they didn't lose – uh, they won and they kept their belts. The Condry and Higgerson were going to leave the Southeast, and that's exactly what happened. Sullivan and Lucas uh, won the belts. They won the match. Condry and Higgerson, who were one of the uh, one of the greatest Southeastern tag teams in history, man, they were history. They left, uh, mm-hmm. and and my cage did its job. On the end, man, neither heel was able to interfere. And I won the 20 grand, man. <laughs> wow. On Friday night. That's another big night for the fans and for you, evidently. So how'd you do in attendance? What was it like? Well, it was mid-December, and, and I knew it was probably going to be the worst week of the year. Uh, you know, that's traditionally the case. Uh, the last uh, Friday night, uh, the last uh, match before Christmas was, uh, wow, it was really hard to get fans out uh, f- at that time of year. And uh, so I intentionally booked this match in Chilhowee Park. Obviously, I didn't want to be in the Coliseum with a smaller crowd. Mm-hmm. And the crowd was only about 3,600. Didn't look too bad in Chilhowee Park's uh, building, but uh, it wouldn't have looked too pretty in the Coliseum compared to what we were doing. Oh, my God. I just thought of something. I always think back a uh, Gorilla Monsoon once said, Standing room only. And you could see rows and rows of empty seats behind him on <laughs> Monday Night Raw. I was so embarrassed for him. All right. Anyway, so you mentioned, <laughs> I can't believe that came up. All right. You mentioned earlier the Knoxville War of 1979 and something around this time that was going to affect both territories. So you want to you talk about that now? Yeah, man. I think it's a good time for it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and I have not spoken of the war lately. Last couple of episodes, we have not not dealt with much of it. And a, and a while back, I talked about, uh, just to remind people, a couple of maybe three or four stud casts back, I talked about the other two Tennessee territories that were there in the state of Tennessee, wrestling companies. And uh, both of those were having a really bad fall of 1978. They just weren't drawing. Uh, and the country was not doing very well. There was a recession in the country as well as a recession for wrestling in those two territories at this time. And, uh, you know, Southeastern in both territories that we had going at that time were both doing pretty darn well, much better than most territories in the country back in those days. Uh, the Memphis territory at that time was owned by my father and Jerry Jarrett. And uh, they were both in, in great need of talent, uh, something that, boy, I seem to have, and Southeastern had an abundance of, man. We had some great wrestlers in our crews. Uh, Memphis was suffering because they just didn't have the, the wrestling talent they needed. And it was about this time of year in 1978 that uh, they contacted my brother and uh, began discussions with Rob about becoming their booker. You know, and, and that was not <laughs> normally the way business was handled. Wow. wow. You, know, uh, you didn't do that. Uh, usually, if you wanted someone especially as important as a booker, 
you you needed to contact the owner of the territory personally, and uh, they didn't, and uh, and uh, neither did my brother tell me about it at this point. He didn't mention it either. So uh, I kind of understood Rob's position. Uh, he was only talking to my father. He wasn't talking to Jerry, and uh, you know, and no deal had been reached. Uh, but uh, you know, replacing a good Booker it wasn't easy. That was he was one of the most important men in any wrestling company, and hmm. it wasn't easy to find the right guy. And if it was going to happen, you know, I needed to know, especially long before. Uh, the Booker, that Booker, you know, was going to be leaving, you know, especially I I needed to, to get myself another Booker. It's a lot of things that needed to be done. So I had two territories. Uh, this is the end of 1978. Both of them were doing great. And I would have been eager to help my father and Jared, but, uh, but I certainly deserved to know what was going on. They should have talked to me about their situation. And uh, so this was the end of the best year so far in Southeastern history, man. Uh, we had really started in 74. We had struggled 75, 76 got better. 77 was really good. 1978 was the best year we had had in Southeastern history. And uh, things were about to change dramatically in the future for both territories. That's for sure. Hmm. You know, that last sign sounds very ominous, Stud. All right. Like, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the upcoming Studcast. I hope that's what that means. And I'm sure we will. That's it. And you, you're getting off into some, 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 I guess you would say some thick weeds there. All right. So, hey, this is a good time for a break. Let's do that. And when we come back, there will be a ride into Southeastern Gulf Coast. That happens when we return on this Studcast. Spend some time this Christmas with Ron's Super Studcast. Visit the website at tnstud.com. Click Super Studcast and find more than 40 of them. Most are almost three hours long and all are filled with wrestling history. Only $2.99 will take you on a one-of-a-kind wrestling ride. Get your wrestling education from Andre the Giant to Coco Beware. The Tennessee Stud at his best. At TNStud.com. Click Super Studcast. Only $2.99. Saddle up today. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back. Episode number 279 of this Studcast called Both Territories Card, December 15th, 1978. So I assume we are going to be discussing the same week in Gulf Coast as we've been talking about in Knoxville around, as I said, December 15th, 1978. So who was on and what was the deal on that card? Well, you're correct, man. We will be discussing that uh, the same. In this situation, we're down south now. We've got three television stations in three major markets. And we're going to be talking about one card that's going to be in all three of those markets. It's going to be the same week. Of December 15, 1978, uh, obviously that'd be Friday night in Dothan. And when we do the card in Dothan, it's going to be on the same night as Knoxville. And the card that we just talked about, 500 miles to the north. So, uh, and I just mentioned earlier that we had some pretty good talent, man. And uh, so just to give people an idea, in the very first match, on this uh, this uh, card that's in the south, down in uh, the Gulf Coast territory, uh, we've got Frankie Lane 
uh, opening up the card against an- another young star that had come in that territory. Uh, this guy's got a really big future, and it gives just fans an idea of what kind of talent we had. We already had so many great wrestlers. This kid was Buzz Sawyer. And, uh, wow, Sawyer is <laughs> – Geez, he's he's a he's a tremendous mm-hmm. tremendous piece of talent. No uh, Terry Gibbs in the second match is going to be facing Ken Dillinger. Both those guys, pretty darn good wrestlers. Mister Wrestling number two was going to be making a rare appearance, a rare appearance, and uh, he's going to be against Norville Austin. So there's a great match, the third match on the card. Then there was a special challenge match between Tony Charles and David Schultz. Which they'd been going at it for, for a while. Uh, then there's a Southeastern Tag Championship match with the new champions, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golan, wrestling against the former champions, Don Carson and the Assassin, managed by Billy Spears. And then the sixth and the final match of the night was for the Southeastern title. Uh, Bob Armstrong had just won that title back. Uh, and he was going to be defending it against the former champion, the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., Okay, without a doubt, that's a great card right there, Stud. Buzz Sawyer, Mr. Wrestling 2, Charles versus Schultz, plus two championship matches. So how did you set all this up on the TV show just six days before this card? Well, it opened with Charlie Platman running down the upcoming show, uh, as always. Kind of the same thing Les did in the beginning of these shows. Uh, Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden are going to be in action on this TV, plus Don Carson and the Assassin are going to be in action. Tony Charles is going to be on the profile. David Schultz uh, was on the card, and so was the new Southeastern champion, Bob Armstrong. And he was going to be defending his belt again on TV for the second week in a row. Uh, so, you know, he had defended it last week against a very talented son of a gun, Jerry Lawler, and uh, he's going to defend the Southeastern Championship on TV uh, again. So when the cameras backed away uh, from the close-up uh, with Charlie, the studio roared, man, because Charlie, uh, you know, uh, it failed to mention to the fans that they had new tag champions. Uh, fans weren't aware that Robert and Jimmy had won the belts uh, from the tag teams, from uh, Carson and uh, the Assassin. Right. Um, Spears, uh, and uh, they stood up there. They were uh, when the cameras backed away. Uh, you could see Rob and Jimmy standing there. They were holding the belts over their heads, and wow, the studio really got wow. They were they were very very happy to see they had some new <laughs> champions. Uh, then uh, after the celebration uh, with studio crowd, Charlie congratulated them, and then they sat down and they watched a video from Mobile, Alabama, four days earlier where they had won the belts, the Southeastern Tag Championship belts and the studio audience. Boy, they loved that video. And then they gave them a standing ovation. Uh, Rob and Jimmy went straight to the ring for the first TV match as champions. Now, they weren't defending the title, but they took their belts with them. And uh, at the end of that match, Jimmy Golden drop-kicked a guy from the top row, Rob said. He drop-kicked him so hard, he said the guy flew straight through the ropes and (laughs) – it slid under one of the cameras, man, and on his back. <laughs> no, and uh, and then so Rob said he just went in and put the fuller leg lock on the other one, and they got him a big win on TV, uh, first win as champions on TV. And then their upcoming opponents the next week was Don Carson and the Assassin, and they were the next two in the ring. 
And while they were in the ring, uh, Jimmy, uh, Billy Spears went straight to the set uh, after their introduction. And he spent the entire match berating the Southeastern officials and Charlie Platt for everything he could think of. Didn't make any. He was unhappy with everything. And he started off with how his team in the first video of the day, uh, the one that they showed from Mobile four days earlier, he said they weren't beaten uh, past, uh, you know, they weren't beaten. And, but instead, he said they had their belts stolen from them, man, in that crooked <laughs> Alabama city. That's, he didn't even say the name of the city. He called it a crooked Alabama city. Hmm. All right. So, uh, sorry, but I hate to interrupt, but after last week's personality profile on TV, I got to ask, was was some of that berating about the manager versus manager match between him and Gorgeous George Jr. that took place in Pensacola the Sunday before this TV? You remember that day? I do, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it, it was certainly part of that discussion, yeah. Especially after Char- Charlie Toast Pierce, he said, uh, you know, uh, that we're going to uh, be showing a video of that match as soon as the one in the ring. You're you're your guys up here wrestling, as soon as that match is over, we're going to show a video of that match between you and uh, Gorgeous George Jr. Well, Billy Spears exploded, man. He was he screamed, you know, that, that if he showed that match, he goes, I guarantee you I'm going to have my mother's battery of attorneys immediately file suit against Southeastern. <laughs> you know, he said that that video ever gets shown on this television or anywhere. You know, uh, he says my mother's attorneys are – going to see to it that I'm going to own this company. I'll be the owner of Southeastern Wrestling if they do that. You know, and about that time, you know, his, his team got their win on TV. And uh, and he was still screaming when when he left the set and he went to the ring and he raised their hands in victory. And the first and second interviews in this show were very hot and contested interviews. It was Rob and Jimmy uh, talking about their return match, the upcoming championship return match with Carson and the Assassin and Billy Spears being the, being the man that was going to handle them. Uh, personality profile on this show was with Tony Charles. Yeah, he watched the very end of the six-man tag match six days earlier, one in Pensacola that we talked about last week, on that card last week. So fans got to see that the end of that six-man tag. And on the end of that tag, it showed him and Schultz, man, they were having their own private war at the end of that match. It was just the two of them, and they were fighting outside the ring. And there was a stage in that building. Uh, nobody had ever gotten up onto the stage in that building, especially fighting. And it showed uh, Schultz and Schultz a drag. He kind of drugged Tony Charles up onto the stage, hmm. and then he piledrived him on this stage, man. To, and uh, Tony got carried back to the dressing room after that. Uh, well, it's lucky he didn't break his neck because uh, those old stages were those were built with real lumber, man, big yeah. time stuff. Wow! So fans in the studio, obviously, they didn't like that part of the video, and I'm sure those at home didn't either. And it was the first baby, you know, face to face match in ten weeks between Tony Charles and David Schultz. It was an upcoming deal. Tony told everybody that also, you know, uh, <coughs> he knew how to pile drive. He said, I know how to do that hole, you know, and he says, I don't use that move because it causes so many injuries and so many guys and friends of mine have been hurt by that move. He said, but you know, 
I'm going to make an exception for David Schultz this week. And he goes, I'm going to do that hold on him now that he's done it to me. And he says, I'm going to leave him laying just like he <laughs> left me laying in that video. Wow. That's two serious wrestlers, Ryan. So, wow. All right. So who is next in the ring? Well, the man himself, you know, uh, uh, Tony Charles that had been talking about uh, David Schultz. And David must have been listening to the profile because he answered Tony's comments by pile driving his opponent at the end of this match, uh, not once but twice in the ring. And then he was getting ready to pile drive him for the third time. Kid was already uh, unconscious. And uh, Tony Charles, Charles uh, he couldn't take it. He discharged in the ring. Schultz just jumped out. He didn't let him touch him. But, uh, you know, yeah, you could see that these two were really headed for some brawls in the future. There's no doubt about that. Then the new Southeastern champion, uh, Bob Armstrong, finished the show. Uh, he defended his belt on TV for the second week in a row. And like I said, he had beaten uh, Jerry Lawler the week before. And this time he had another big-time contender, man, to, for this championship match. He was wrestling Norvell Austin. So uh, Gorgeous George Jr. and the Stomper uh, – and the stomper had his steel truck shock with him. Uh, they went to the set. You know, Bob Armstrong's wrestling against Norvell Austin. Uh, this was going to be a great match, and it was going to last a little while. So Gorgeous George and stomper went to the set, and the stomper was cranking his tire shock. The entire time, Gigi sat down there with Charlie, and Gigi was running his mouth. And, wow, he was very upset. He was kind of like – he was just about as upset, I guess, as – it's what uh, Billy Spears had been earlier in the show. And he was upset about his stomper not yet. Uh, hadn't gotten a return championship match. It had been almost a month, he said, since he had lost his belt to, to Bob Armstrong. And then he asked Charlie why. Why did a nobody like Jerry Lawler deserve a title shot at his stomper? Uh, he had, had <laughs> deserve a title shot at Bob Armstrong instead of his stomper. Hmm. Pretty good point, but uh, – Jerry Lawler is not a no nobody, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so Charlie, you know, realizing Jerry Lawler was anything but a nobody, he kind of changed the subject on Gigi, and uh, and he asked him about, you know, he says, "I want to talk a little bit about that match that you recently had against Billy Spears in Pensacola hmm. a few days ago." And uh, Gigi, man, you know, he was just as adamant about it not being shown on TV as Spears was. You know, they did not want that match showed. I don't know what the real reason for that was, mm. but uh, they didn't. They neither one looked forward to ever having that on TV. All right, but knowing you, Ron, there has to be something about to happen with that manager versus manager match. But I know you're not going to tell me about it. Uh, I understand <laughs> that. I understand. So what else happened on this TV? <laughs> All right, so. So Bob Armstrong, he finally got the sleeper at the end of this match on Norvell. And, uh, wow, when he put the sleeper on him, man, uh, the studio exploded. And uh, when that happened, uh, Gigi gave this kind of demand to Stomper. And I'm watching the show. He didn't say, go get him. He didn't say anything like, he goes, Chukabaka, uh, you know, he's speaking in, in uh, Stomper language, right? And uh, Stomper just took that truck shock. And here he went, man. He charged the ring, and uh, and he had the shock with him. Well, now Bob had his back turned to where the stomper was coming in the ring. He never saw him coming, 
and the stomper nailed uh, Bob across the back with that truck shock, man. And uh, that was a shock. Wow. And just watching that happen, wow. I was like, God almighty, that had to hurt. Uh, Armstrong went down uh, like an elevator, man. <laughs> just straight down in his face. And the referee rang the bell for a disqualification. But uh, Norvell grabbed the ref and threw him over the top rope. Uh, then the stomper held Bob Armstrong up, and Norvell ran across the ring, hit the ropes, and came back. And he did uh, one of those diving headbutts, hit face-to-face with Bob. And uh, and he, he opened Bob up. Bob got cut, and then Norvell grabbed the southeastern belt from Bob's corner, where Bob had laid it when he started into this match. And uh, he held it over his head, and the Mongol man got in a couple of stomps right into Bob's bloody face. And and uh, finally, Rob and Jimmy were able to run in the ring, and Norvell and the Stomper got the heck out of there at that point. So Norvell and the Stomper were, uh, for the next interview, they were in another studio. Uh, this was for the last interview of the show, and Bob was uh, helped to Charlie's desk by Rob and Jimmy. He was still bleeding. And, uh, you know, he wasn't, didn't have all this, he wouldn't, didn't have all his faculties uh, about him at this point. But uh, so Charlie saw that and he, instead of trying to get Bob to talk, he threw it to the other studio. And uh, over there, the three of those guys were celebrating, man. Uh, they had the belt. The Norvell had left the ring with the belt. And uh, then Norvell and Gigi, they were so excited. Uh, they were so uh, having such a good time that you could hardly hear and what they were saying because they were talking over top of each other. And uh, Larry Brock, who was the referee, came right in in the middle of the interview, just reached and grabbed the belt away from Norvell, and he, he left. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so then when uh, – when it came back, uh, then pretty much a few seconds later, the interview went back to the set with Les, and I mean not with Les, but with Charlie Platt and mm-hmm. Bob Armstrong. Yeah, and it showed uh, Larry Brock hand the belt to Bob. So Bob <laughs> had his belt back, and then, you know. So when then Bob, uh, you know, it was Bob's turn to finish the show, and uh, boy, as always, he lit him up, man. And he was saying how much that belt meant to him, that he had been the first to ever wear it. And that's true. He was the guy that won that belt in the first, uh, when we first went down there and started, he was the very first one to ever hold that belt. And uh, Bob said that now after today, uh, when it came to Stomper and Gigi, that uh, he would guarantee everybody he'd be the last to wear it, that they'll (laughs) never get this belt back. Uh, that's awesome hearing you talking about our old friend Larry Brock. All right, so both TV shows were really tremendous, Ron, no doubt. So what happened in the three cities that got this card and TV? Well, newcomer Buzz Sawyer, man, he lived up to his name right off the bat. He, and he cut Frankie Lane down, man, like he was a giant oak tree. <laughs> Buzz sawed him, that's for sure. And uh, then uh, Terry Gibbs uh, won over Ken Dillinger. Norvell Austin surprised everybody with a win over Mr. Wrestling 2. Uh, Wrestling 2 didn't win a lot of matches back, didn't lose a lot of matches back in those days. And uh, that's a great win for Norvell. Uh, Tony Charles, David Schultz, they had a, man, I would have had to describe it as a scary brawl, man. They went all over that building fighting. Uh, and then there was never a winner declared in the match. Uh, on any night, 
during that whole week, because that card was in three towns, they fought all over three buildings. So Montgomery Civic Center on a Monday, uh, Expo Hall in Mobile on a Wednesday, and then on a Friday night uh, right there in the Farm Center, they had another one just the same night, same thing they'd been having all week. Uh, Rob and Jimmy successfully defended their tag belts. They got a win by disqualification. Uh, and uh, Bob Armstrong held on to his Southeastern title. Okay, so what about the attendances for the week? Well, bear in mind, uh, this was maybe the hardest week of the year to draw a crowd. I mentioned that in the uh, in the Knoxville portion of this. Uh, Montgomery's crowd dropped basically about 2,500. Mobile uh, was around 4,300, and Dothan was uh, about 3,600. And uh, that was about more than a thousand fans less than a week before, but it was still significantly more than other territories were drawn that time of the year in 1978. Uh, no doubt about that. Okay, so it really looks like we may have enough time for another learning tree question, Stud. So you've used a combination of pictures of Dennis Condry, Phil Hickerson, and Ron Wright to promote at least the last two stud casts. So I think this might be where this question comes from, from that fact. So Ronnie Rice asked, in your opinion, could Dennis, Phil, and Ron Wright have had long, long runs in other territories? That's a, that's a very good question, Mr. Rice. Uh, you know, uh, you're talking Dennis Condry, Phil Higgerson, and, uh, and their manager, Ron Wright, uh, uh, wow, good question. You know, uh, both Dennis and Phil were great workers. There's no way to deny that. Wow, they were great wrestlers. And I don't know whether they had a manager with them in the other territories before they came to Southeastern uh, or whether they did their own talking. But, uh, you know, when they came to Southeastern and we added Ron Wright as their manager, uh, and they, they had, uh, and there he was. He had two country boys, redneck guys uh, from the from the south. And uh, I think putting Ron Wright with that team was a pretty darn good idea. I have to, say, if I say so myself. Uh, and it naturally worked well in a southern territory because both Condry and Higgerson, they were truly country, and uh, and and boy, they could work their rear ends off in the ring. They were fantastic in the ring as a team. Wow. And that alone, man, would have made up for who, who they were, really, you know. Uh, uh, and, but, and, and what their bodies looked like, they didn't have the greatest bodies. But, wow, they were so good in the ring, and they're such a great team. Uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it didn't make any difference, I guess, is the way I would have to put it. Uh, they had a great gimmick, especially when you added Ron Wright to it. Uh, but Mr. Rice, uh, I think that's the name, uh, after watching them closely, I believe they could have been an even better draw in territories that weren't in the southern United States. Uh, when you had Ron Wright and his ability to talk and to get heat doing it, you had something that uh, had never been seen outside the south, you know, <laughs> in other parts of the country. So, uh, you know, and thinking about it, Ron Wright and his boys, uh, imagine Ron Wright and his team, you know, uh, in New York <laughs> or anywhere in the Northeast, you know, uh, in Vern Gagne's AWA territory. 
in St. Louis, in the Midwestern part of the country, mm-hmm. out in Portland, Oregon, in that territory, uh, or, wow, anywhere in California. So fans in those mm-hmm. areas, they never saw anything like that. You know, these guys could wrestle like crazy, and Ron Wright could just infuriate anybody if he wanted to. So, wow, they would have just been, been maybe even better in other parts of the country than they were in the South. And when you think about it, Dennis Condry alone was one of the greatest tag team wrestlers in the history of the business. Uh, way back in 1982, we paired him up with Randy Rose and Norvell Austin, uh, as, and he was a member as one of the first ever three-man teams. Uh, and uh, we, that was, uh, they were an original team. We call them the Midnight Express. That's where the first Midnight Express team came from, wow. Southeastern. Wow. Wow. With the wow. three three guys. Uh, and wow, when we did that and put these three guys together, they lit the territory up back in the 82. And uh, so Dennis, Dennis went on to be a member of every Midnight Express combination. And there were so many of them, my goodness. And every one of those combinations proved to be uh, one of the best tag team ever. You know, they and they end up with Jim Cornette, uh, so one of the greatest managers ever. I mean, wow! The Midnight Express started in 1982 in Southeastern, and it went through all different types of combinations. But Dennis Condry remained one of those combinations the entire time. That team was it, it was one of the greatest teams in history. So uh, I'm sure, Mr. Rice, uh, you know. You can kind of tell how I feel about Condry and Rose and then uh, Ron Wright. Uh, and I was really honored, man, to have those guys work in one of my territories. Uh, I think that combination uh, basically would have been stars. I don't care wherever they went, anywhere in the world, I think those guys would have been stars. I'll tell you what, you never cease to amaze me, Stud. Every one of these Studcast pure wrestling history and folks on facebook if you'd like to become friends with ron to participate in the dueling cards picks and tv pick as well but you're not already friends you can become friends by going to his ron full of the tennessee stud facebook page like him follow him there and automatically become friends with a legend look for studcast number 279 post and make your choices Studcast number 279 posts. Make your choices. And Twitter, same thing. Find him there at Ron Fuller Welch. And if you have not already done so, you can log in and follow him there. And then that's another way to participate. Look for Studcast number 279 to make your choices there. And the YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind. It is filled with all kinds of information, videos, and Studcast. It is also a great place to find out more about what's new with Ron's tremendous streaming channel, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com is where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud. His classic old-school TV shows are fantastic. There are now 95 Southeastern, 23 Continental, and 12 Gulf Coast TV shows available, all in the order which they were recorded. Hundreds more are coming. 49 stud stories, six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, and 14 chapters of his audiobook, Brutus, read by Ron, plus hundreds of hours 
of other fantastic old school wrestling as well. All of this is only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. You save a bunch of money by doing it that way. Plus, you're just not sure. Get the free one-week trial. It is still available. You, too, will discover this is the best deal in not just old-school wrestling, but in wrestling, period. Wow, that's a lot, Ron. So where do we ride next week? Well, man, next week we're headed into Christmas week of 1978. The last week of 1978, obviously, uh, we've got great cards, uh, great crowds. And uh, and compared to what's happening in the sport today, uh, great times. And it's so different today than what it was back in uh, those days. Wow, it was great times for fans back in those days. We're going to end up 1978 with a bang in this next this next studcast. Uh, it was the greatest year so far in Southeastern wrestling history. And I'm going to break that fact down for everybody, kind of explain how it was so good and what made it such a good year. Uh, we'll still talk about the Christmas cards, uh, not the ones that uh, you send people, not that type of Christmas card, but the Christmas matches uh, of that year. And we'll still do a lot of what we normally do. But also, we're going to look back at some of the highlights or the high spots, as we call them in the business, uh, of 1978. And hopefully, we'll get to answer the last learning tree question of the year. Uh, the next studcast after this one will be the last one of the year for 1978 mm-hmm. and for to, to 2020. And, uh, you know, uh, I want to end up today, Dave, with a special thanks to everybody around the world that sent me all these wonderful comments and thoughts uh, about the loss of my, my dear mother, man, this past week. And, you know, I never realized how many people out there care for me and, and what I do. And, and I'm truly humbled to be so blessed by the good Lord to, to have so many friends. Uh, please, uh, you know, think of others this time of year. And uh, thanks for riding with me week after week. That is fantastic. Ron, we love you. God bless you. We're still going to be thinking about you and praying for you. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.